Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Hello, and welcome to Graffiti Talk Radio. My name is Derek Talley, and I'm joined by my co-host today, Bumble Clot. Bumble, are you in the building? Original Gangsters, the book. Get it. That's right. And I'm joined by my man, Fresh. What's up, Fresh? Chilling, man. Ready to be schooled. Well, ladies and gentlemen, today we are interviewing Ben Westhoff, the author of the book Original Gangsters, the untold story of Dr. Dre, Eazy-E, Ice Cube, Tupac Shapur, and the birth of West Coast rap. Hello, Ben. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you guys doing? Thanks for having me. Oh, we're do- we're doing great, man. We're just excited about your book. I mean, I found out so much that I didn't know. I thought I knew everything, but this book took me back to school. And so we wanted to ask you a couple of questions today. First of all, how did you come to write the book? Well, when I was in high school in the early 90s, uh, this music like Dr. Dre's The Chronic and Snoop Dogg's Doggy Style were the biggest uh, albums in my school, and everybody loved it, and I was into it, and, you know, I still like that music today, and when I became the LA Weekly music editor about five years ago, I got the chance to interview a lot of my childhood heroes, people like Dre and Snoop and Ice-T and Ice Cube, and once I got those interviews going, I thought I really, you know, could put this book together. Well, it is an excellent book. One of the things that I found out is that Ice Cube and Dr. Dre both made anti-gang, anti-violent songs before N.W.A. was even formed. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, it's kind of ironic when you think about it, considering in N.W.A. they would, you know, call themselves a gang, essentially. But, yeah, Ice Cube was with his, one of his first groups called Stereo Crew, and he, you know, one of the very first lines that he recorded was, was all about, like, dissing gang life and gang culture and talking about how it led to the prison or, or the, the mortuary. And Dr. Dre, with his first group called World Class Wrecking Crew, co-wrote a song called Gang Bang, You're Dead. And it made fun of the, you know, the, the headbands, the, the uh, bandanas, the... 40 ounces, everything associated with gang culture, too. So, you know, a lot of people know that Dr. Dre had that famous line with NWA, how he, um, you know, doesn't smoke Buddha, doesn't smoke marijuana because it's known to give a brother brain damage. And then he came out yeah, with yeah. the But, but not <laughs> yeah. many people know that he also uh, dissed gangs, too. Wow, wow, he just went backwards all the way. That, that's funny. But he, I guess he learned his lesson and he took it forward, though. So it's good that, you know, we're all learning, we're all growing. And gangster rap was considered the language of the street. And Schooly D made the first gangster rap song. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, he was uh, out of Philadelphia, and his song, um, PSK, What Does It Mean, was really inspirational to Ice-T, who had the first West Coast yeah. Kingscraft song with Six in the Morning. And then, uh, and then Six in the Morning was directly inspirational to Eazy-E when he came up with Boys in the Hood. And so those are kind of the the first three, like, real gangster rap songs to take off. Right. Well, rap had a hard time. Before even gangster rap, rap had a hard time even getting played on the radio. And uh, K-Day in Los Angeles with Greg Mack was the first in the country to play rap 24-7. And I used to live in Lompoc, California at the time in the late 80s. And um, we could get that radio station at night. Sometimes we couldn't get it during oh, the day, wow. but at night, yeah, at night you could get the you could get that K Day with, with uh, DJ Greg Mack, and then all the college stations uh, back in the late '80s, all the college stations were, was what you had to listen to to find some new rap. So I just yeah, thought that absolutely. was interesting. Yeah, and uh, DOC was himself a radio personality from Dallas before he got with NWA. Um, did you get a chance to speak with him? Yeah, well, not exactly. He was discovered by a radio personality who was in uh, World Class Wrecking Crew with Dr. Dre. But, yeah, I did get to speak and hang out with DOC in my reporting for the book. And, uh, yeah, he, you know, what's interesting about DOC is not only was he an amazing rapper, you know, maybe one of the best rappers in, in history, uh, especially from the West Coast, but he also ghost wrote a ton of classic albums, you know, N.W.A. stuff. Yeah. He did a lot of ghostwriting on uh, Easy E solo albums, you know, Snoop Dogg. He helped, he helped him a lot. Um, but the thing was, even though he became known for, for writing gangster rap lyrics, he knew nothing about gang culture at all growing up in Dallas, Texas. And he, uh, when he got to L.A., Dr. Dre told him he had to come out. You know, Dr. Dre met him through another member of World Class Wrecking Crew and, and was like, you got to come out here, we'll get rich together. And and that's basically how it happened. Wow. Now, Ice Cube, when Ice Cube left NWA, he originally wanted Sam Seaver to produce his album. Why didn't that go down? Um, I think it was just a matter of they didn't link up for whatever reason. Um, Ice Cube made a trip out to New York and he ended up linking up with Chuck D in the Bomb Squad. And that ended up being a really, you know, his, his first choice was Dr. Dre, but after he left NWA, that wasn't going to happen. So the, the Bomb Squad um, were able to kind of combine the funk, the West Coast funk that he loved, with the, the, the kind of frenetic, chopped up samples that sound that Public Enemy had become known for. And it was uh, it was a great a great mix for Ice Cube's uh, debut solo album, America's Most Wanted. Right, yeah, I'm glad that it went down like it did because that was a good album. All those albums were good. Now another thing that we learned, and this is kind of funny the way I put it, but Chocolate wrote a song for Vanilla and Suge had to collect. <laughs> but, but now Boss Hog CPO and in our interview with him said that they didn't even believe chocolate until they saw the big house with the Mercedes. 
And Havoc said that they were teasing him about the song until they saw how much it paid him. Yeah, that that was a crazy story. Um, this this rapper named Chocolate uh, linked up with with Suge Knight. This was before Death Row Records, and Suge Knight was kind of just breaking into the music industry as a bodyguard for DOC, actually. But around that time, yeah, yeah. Chocolate enlisted Suge's services, and that was when Vanilla Ice was breaking out, and the song Ice Ice Baby was on the radio every 15 seconds. And he said, you know, um, I actually wrote, co-wrote a lot of songs on that album, and Suge sort of uh, looked into it and kind of shook down Vanilla Ice. And, you know, the famous story is that he hung him over the balcony and scared him. But it turns out that's not really true. Um, Suge just sort of brought Vanilla out to the bal- out, out, onto a balcony at his hotel room and kind of put the fear of God into him. And Vanilla agreed to uh, kind of sign over some of the royalties. And, and that basically made... Uh, Chocolate, a very rich man. Wow. Wow. Now, the FBI, they sent a letter to Priority Records about anti-police music, but it didn't seem to scare them off. Um, Could you tell us about that? Yeah. This was presumably in response to F the police. I don't know if we can swear here or what. Oh, yeah, it's fine. Okay, yeah, that that was in response to fuck the police. And the FBI letter was a little strange. It didn't say that, you know, NWA was going to get arrested. It didn't say they were breaking the law. It just kind of said that the FBI didn't really appreciate that they were making this anti-police music. And, you know, that's really against the First Amendment for for the government to get involved with uh, a work of art like that. And so there were congressmen who were arguing on NWA's side. A lot of people thought this was really bogus. And it it was a smart marketing decision that instead of sort of backing down or getting afraid, that NWA really embraced it. And it uh, was great publicity for them. Right, right. Well, um, as gangster rap started to pick up, and more record labels were looking at signing gangster rap artists. What do you think scared major labels off the most when it comes to gangster rap? Was it Ice-T's Cop Killer, which isn't even a rap song. I know it's a heavy metal song, but it actually, you know, got made the news and, and made, you know, the, you know, everyone scared or, you know, aware of what's going on in the hip-hop community. Was it Ice-T's Cop Killer or was it that NWA FBI letter? I think that uh, Ice-T's Cop Killer had a really strong effect on the industry. And when it came to Time Warner, which was the parent company that put out Cop Killer, they received boycotts around the country. Time Warner had owned so many different interests, like theme parks. People were, like, boycotting their their amusement parks. And it, it came down to... Uh, the, the one of the heads of the company came to Ice-T and he said, you know, this this is really screwing up our company. And at the same time, there were bomb threats. Ice-T said his daughter was being, like, pulled out of school and questioned by, like, government agents and, and all this stuff. And Damn. so, Damn. yeah, it, 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 was, it was, they really turned the screws. And so eventually Ice-T agreed to, to pull the song, whereas... Um, 
you know, it never really came to that with with NWA. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Now, I, I counted about four times where the FBI gets involved with ruthless records here. The second time is when the FBI investigated Mike Klein from the JDL for shaking down rappers. Did they not have enough evidence to convict? No, I don't think they did at all. I think what was ironic was that the JDL, the Jewish Defamation League, was really partnering with, with EV in a lot of ways. This was after Suge Knight was trying to intimidate Ruthless Records because they wanted Dr. Dre in his contract. So, so Dr. Dre was under contract, under contract with Ruthless, and their manager, Jerry Heller, was was not trying to you know let him go and neither was EVE but Suge Knight uh, according to EVE's testimony Suge Knight in, um, through Dr. Dre had EVE come over to the studio to sell our records one night and as it's seen shown in the movie Straight Outta Compton intimidated him into signing over Dr. Dre's contract with with baseball bats and and all kind of things like that the movie isn't isn't totally accurate about this it made it look like the that should guys beat up easy, but that didn't happen in real life. Um, but anyway, so so once this happened, um, Jerry Howler and Ruthless wanted to sort of increase their security, and so they hired this Israeli kind of operator whose name was Mike Klein, and he enlisted the he and Jerry Howler enlisted the services of the Jewish Defamation League, which was known for kind of um, in the, the, you know, the post-Nazi era, trying to really protect Jewish people by any means necessary, if you will. And so they had a strong partnership with, with Easy and Ruthless Records. So this idea that they were trying to shake him down, you know, it didn't really, I think, make a lot of sense, and, and it ended up uh, not, not going anywhere. Right, right. Because I was thinking that would be some type of racket to where where rappers would get anonymous calls threatening them, and then all of a sudden they'd also get a call uh, offering to protect them just in time. Kind of like when I when I when I read it in your book, I kind of I kind of got the um, sense of a brand new glass company. Uh, opening up in the neighborhood and then the next day everybody's windshield gets busted out and then the next day after that yeah. everybody gets a, a flyer on their on their under their windshield about say, Hey, we fixed glass, you know. Yeah. That's kinda how I was thinking what was happening here. These rappers will get threatened and then all of a sudden just in time they would get an offer of protection and then say, Hey, let's use these guys, you know, and they get yeah. shut down. <laughs> yeah, but um, stuff like that happens. Yeah, well, and the the third time that the FBI is mentioned in your book is concerning ruthless records. White supremacists had Easy E on a hit list, and the FBI didn't even tell him about it. How did he find out? Yeah, that was that was terrible. That he didn't find out until well after the fact, and the the FBI. What their excuse was was that well, you know, these were just threats. We didn't find any any credible evidence. But ruthless records and EDE thought this was more payback for fuck the police and stuff like that. So they were pretty upset about it. 
Did they uh did they uh, hire a private investigator to like uh figure out what was going on? Because I read in the article. Um, I think it was that, I think it was something like the, the L.A. Times broke the story or something like that, and that's how they found okay. out. Okay. Okay. Wow. Well, I learned also that Tamika Wright and Mike Klein drove a wedge between Easy E and Jerry Heller. Uh, can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, it's it, it's not entirely true. It's not exactly sure how you know. There's a lot of different um, different stories and rumors flying around. Mike Klein and, and Tamika were on different sides of it too. Actually, um, Mike Klein claimed that he should he was entitled to half of Ruthless Records when Easy died, and Tamika claimed that she should own all of it. Um, you know, Easy married. Tamika, who was his girlfriend, on his deathbed and changed his will immediately. And so Mike Klein claimed that he wasn't actually in his right mind. You know, he was too sick to really know what he was yeah. doing when he signed these papers and that uh, it was not legitimate. And so, he, you know, Jerry Heller, meanwhile, had been fired not long ago by Easy. And, you know, this was strange because they had been together for so long and they were really, really tight. I mean, you know, when, when Ice Cube left NWA and complained about Jerry Heller, Easy E sided with Jerry Heller. When Dr. Dre left NWA and complained about Jerry Heller, Easy E sided with Jerry Heller. So they, they had a strong bond and Jerry Heller claimed that, uh, said the same thing, that Easy wasn't in his right mind, that he was sick that, you know, other people were influencing him. And in the end, yeah, yeah. the the court sided with Tamika, and they said that, you know, the paperwork was legitimate and she was the rightful owner of Ruthless Records and his estate. But there's still a lot of bitterness about all that to this day. Yeah, that's the yeah. same thing that was brought up when we spoke with Gary Ballin. Easy and Tamika yeah. got married in March 14th in 1995 and I was going to ask was easy even coherent enough to sign the marriage certificate but you kind of answered my my question on that one I'm I'm thinking that that he wasn't and yeah, um, I mean he was uh you know he was he was you know he was alert he was still in his hospital bed it wasn't like he was passed out or, or something like that but but yeah it, it does raise a lot of questions I mean the man was dead shortly thereafter um even if he was, you know, legally of a sound mind, it still raised a lot of questions in a lot of people's minds. Yeah. yeah. Now, your book brought up a suspicion. There's a suspicion brought up by your book without making any allegations. So there was no allegations made in the book. But it, it, I noticed your book, you know, when you wrote the book, you noticed the same suspicion that I had this suspicion of. The book mentions that easy symptoms started to get better after Tamika left because him and Tamika uh, broke it off for a while and Tamika had left after Easy got sick and he started to get better. And then, you know, once Tamika returned, he started to get sick again. And in our interview with Gary Ballin, he had those same suspicions. Well, the, um, the, the craziest thing was that the, the Nation of Islam was guarding Easy by his deathbed and they tried to use this alternative form of medicine that was coming out of Kenya. It was supposed to be this miracle wonder drug that cured AIDS called oh, Chemron. Man. 
And so we know, of course, that there's no cure for AIDS, but at the time, this was considered something that could help, help him better, help perk him up, kind of resuscitate him. And yeah. the, this drug was brought into his bedside and administered by the Nation of Islam, and there were some signs that it was helping him feel better. It was perking him up a little bit. But uh, Tamika did not want him to take this. And so when they took it away, he, he died shortly thereafter. Now, you know, as I said, it, there's, you know, there's no cure for AIDS. This is not a proven thing. But, again, it raised suspicion in some people's minds, and it, gave, it took away people's hope when, when he stopped receiving this medicine. Yeah, and I was wow. reading the book. It was some type of uh, inhibitor. Uh, I forget the word that was used, but it was some type of inhibitor that, that actually um, made patients get better. It didn't cure it, but it made the patients get better for a short, short time. Could have added some life to them, you know, while he was living. But, you know, yeah, it's hard, we'll, we'll it's hard never to know. Say, you know, it's hard to say yeah. exactly, but you're right. We will never know. Right. And then the, the fourth encounter with the FBI concerning Rufus in the book, the FBI investigation of missing Easy e recordings after his death that are worth millions that were never recovered. Uh, could you tell us about that? This is a really strange story that only came to light after the FBI files were opened up a long time after Easy's death. But apparently, in all of this confusion and chaos, at the time of Easy's death, when all these different parties were trying to take control, like I mentioned, there was there was Tamika, there was Mike Klein, there was Jerry Heller's faction. Apparently, yeah. someone installed themselves at the Ruthless headquarters and changed the the telephone answering machine to have this this number that went to Canada. So apparently, someone like set up this weird satellite office in Canada. And they were trying to have Ruthless Records business go through there. And this person, whoever it was, and we don't know who it was, they got these, this briefcase, which was contained unreleased EVE music. And they, they had this briefcase, and they were kind of holding it hostage, or they were you know, promised money for it or something. The details aren't clear. But eventually, um, you know, the FBI tracked down this person, and they were kind of forced to, to give up, I think. But the music still has not seen the light of day, so I, I don't know where it is, and I, you know, there might be someone out there who knows where it is, but uh, I, I don't know what's going to happen with it, if anything. They wow. actually caught the guy. They actually caught the Cana- the guy that was running the Canadian office. It, it looks like they did. Yeah, the F- FBI report wow. is hard to make out because there's so many things that are redacted with like a, a black marker, so you can't. See yeah. all the details, but that's as far as I understand. That's that's how it is. Wow. Well, they need to Wait. torture that guy or something until he gives up where them where that music is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Who knows, man? I mean, I I feel like Tamika Tamika is the one who might know more about this. She might know about more easy music, um, but then again, you know, she might not. She probably would have put it out if if it existed. So I'm not really sure. Wow. Another thing I learned from your book is that Tupac was Easy's rapper before he went to prison. Yeah. Tupac and Easy were really tight, and he would go to events with Easy. And even I heard like people in Easy's 
camp would wear thug-like caps and stuff like that. And there are some people who believe that if Easy were still alive when Tupac got out of prison, that he might have signed with Ruthless Records instead of Death Row. So if you remember, Easy died in 1995, and then Tupac got out later in 95. So you know he was looking for somebody to to pay his bail to help him to help him get out, and and he and Easy had a, a really close partnership. So that. You never know what could have happened. Wow. Now, another thing I learned from your book is that Biggie originally wanted to leave Puffy and get managed by Tupac, but Tupac advised Biggie to stay with Puffy because Puffy's going to make him a star. Yeah, that was really interesting, too. It was, at the time, Tupac was already a big star. He already had, you know, like platinum albums. And he was a movie star, too. And Biggie wasn't really known outside of Brooklyn or New York very much. And he wanted to uh, have have everything that Tupac had. And he asked him to manage him. But, you know, I don't know. You know, Tupac really believed in Biggie. And he taught him a lot. He, he taught him about the type of songs he should make. He said he should rap for, for, whim, for the women instead of the guys. And he helped him out in other ways. But when it came to actually being his manager, he said, no, I'll stick with Puffy. He'll help you. And, and, you know, of course, Puffy ended up doing that. So, Wow. Wow. Now, once that East Coast, West Coast beef started, one irony that I got from reading your book is that Rage and Snoop refused to get into the East Coast, West Coast war while Ice Cube threw himself into it while he actually could have been the one to extinguish the whole fire. That was was definitely strange, yeah. Uh, as far as Snoop and, and other people on Death Row too, they they just they weren't feeling it. Uh, in the end, it was it was Tupac's war, and it was and it was Suge's war. Suge kind of joined with Tupac, but when when then then you know some random people started getting into it, and Ice Cube just kind of was a shitster, you know. He's He's done that a little bit in his career. He 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 says things that he knows will be controversial because controversy sells. And with his group Westside Connection, they said oh. some inflammatory things against against New York, which which people some people found was odd because Ice Cube before had such a great relationship with the East Coast, like on America's Most Wanted and stuff like that. Right, right. So the West Coast connection could have been the one when he came out with that was was to say, you know, hey, stop this madness. You know, we don't need to be doing this. But, you know, it waits to after, you know, bloodshed. And then you see the the ramifications of your words before you say, okay, now we need to stop this, you know. And then, yeah. uh, um, yeah. You know, to his credit, he was part of the, the Farrakhan Peace Treaty, which I talk about in the epilogue of my book after Biggie and Puck's murders, and he was instrumental in coming together and healing, you know, after that. Right, and uh, Fat Joe, he drove 1,500 miles. I learned from reading your book, 1,500 miles, and he told Ice Cube that I just wanted to look into the whites of your eyes and ask you why. Why did you yeah. do this? I love that quote. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Yeah. Now, um, Upon Tupac's death, you know, we have Tupac that was murdered in Las Vegas, and we have Biggie that was murdered in Los Angeles. It was B 
Biggie's murder investigation with Detective Russell Poole and Detective Russell Poole's conspiracy that led to the investigation of Biggie's murder, which eventually led back to the investigation of Tupac's murder. Uh, you want to tell us about that? Well, there, you know, from the start, it, people can't believe that these murders haven't been solved. You know, more than 20 years later, they were committed in these hundreds of people around, and it, it seems crazy. Uh, there was initially, with Tupac's murder, which happened first, there were these theories that the, the Crips did it. Um, there was, and then with Biggie's murder, there was all this, these theories that it was a widespread uh, cop conspiracy. And Russell Poole was a detective, an LAPD detective, who believed he was being stonewalled when he uncovered this information about um, different cops who were who were partnering up with Death Row and had all these these ties to the murder. And so eventually, though, those theories didn't really seem to bear out. And the theories that make the most sense to me were from a detective named Greg Kading, who was also on LAPD a while later. And Greg Kading believed that a crip named Orlando Anderson, what, who was in, who just happened to be in Las Vegas at the time and had actually been beaten up and stomped by Tupac, Suge, and their entourage at the MGM Grand Casino right after the Mike Tyson fight. He believed that, based on the evidence, that Orlando Anderson came back and murdered Tupac later that night. And then six months later, that Suge paid a man named Wendell Poochie Faust to murder Biggie, and that was in retaliation for Tupac's murder. Wow. And so, but we never would have found out about uh, Orlando Anderson and and his um, take on it if it wasn't for Detective Poole's conspiracy uh, concerning the cops and him constantly getting stonewalled because then Biggie's family sued the LAPD for 400 million yeah for but for like almost a half a billion dollars uh the the the, you know what he would have made during his lifetime approximately and that's that's the only thing that puts some fire in the LAPD's ass to get up and start doing some investigations yeah yep exactly and that's why um Greg Kading and them kind of gotten breathed new life into the into the investigation. And Kading believes that because he sort of cleared the LAPD more or less in his investigation of who killed Biggie, that that's why the whole the plug got pulled. And the the LAPD, you know, basically said, well, we're cleared, so we don't need to bother to to continue with this investigation. And yeah, Kading they don't himself, care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They don't care. So um, I'll tell you what. Um, tell us about your new book deal. I hear you have a new book deal happening. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I just signed it literally on Friday. Uh, it's about synthetic drugs. So if you've heard of, like, um, synthetic marijuana, like K2 and Spice, and also um, fentanyl, yeah, which yeah. is a, a heroin substitute that's killing a lot of people, it's, it's all these these drugs that are intended to mimic the effects 
of drugs you've heard of, you know, typical drugs like marijuana and heroin and LSD and ecstasy, but they're they're made in labs and they're you know killing a lot of people and a lot of people don't know about them yet. Wow, that's that's wow. awful. Yeah. I mean, that's great that we have someone actually writing a book on that. Um, we're definitely going to keep in touch with you on that because we want to learn more about that and um, what's happening in that world because um, we actually don't hear a lot about that. You know, we hear to stay away from drugs, but these these synthetic drugs is it's really um, killing people out there. And what is what is this bath salts that everybody was talking about a while back? Do you know what is that? That's that's exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about. Yeah, these bath salts, they, they're basically a hodgepodge of different drugs, and they're made in these Chinese labs, and they're, they're things called cathinones, and they, um, you know, they're not necessarily bad just in themselves, but often the problem is people don't know the right dosage to take. So if you, you know, if you take, take a little bit, it could be enough to kill you, and it's the... The dosages are all is are, are all fucked up. So stay away from bath salts. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And 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 I bet not. I bet you there's no two batches that are the same dose. Exactly. Right. Yeah, because it's not a controlled substance. This is made in somebody's lab. You know, with different formulas. Oh, that's that's awful. But that's a good thing to know. Now, are you going to be putting this one on audio book too? I would. I would bet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but because we're we're gonna buy it either way, you know. We love your work, you know. So, um, if you if you want to tell everybody uh, where they could where they could reach you at and where they could find you on the internet. Absolutely, you can. My website is benwestoff.com, B-E-N-W-E-S-T-H-O-F-F.com. And yeah, but if you just Google Ben Westoff Original Gangsters, you know, or just Ben Westoff Easy. Dr. Dre, what have you, you'll find me. And I love uh, hearing from people. So, yeah, if you check out the book, um, give me a shout on Twitter or wherever. All right, great. Now, uh, Bomba or Clyde, you have any questions? Yeah, I got a, kind of a question on the, the new book. Um, are, do you, are you going to dwell on the uh, how all those synthetic things came from, like, the – I think it was a university professor somewhere in America. And, like, yeah, his, uh, you're exactly right. Okay, you're going to dwell on that? Okay, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, there was um, there was this professor at Clemson University. His name was John William Huffman. And he was creating yep. something that was like uh, like aspirin. It was like uh, a drug. It was not for recreational purposes. It was for med- medicinal purposes. And uh, the formula kind of got hijacked by rogue drug makers, and they, they created spice out of that, which is a type of... Uh, of uh, synthetic marijuana. That's crazy. Wow. That's crazy. Now, um, uh, just, uh, Fresh, you got any questions? <laughs> no, I'm good. All right. Well, hey, Ben, we want to thank you for joining us today. We really enjoyed your book. Again, the name of the book is called uh, Original Gangsters, The Untold Story of Dr. Dre, Easy e Ice Cube, Tupac Shakur, and the birth of West Coast rap. And I want everybody to be look out for Ben Westhoff's uh, future upcoming work. So that's BenWesthoff.com, B-E-N-W-E-S-T-H-O-F-F.com. Ben, 
Thank you for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Well, thank you. It has been. I appreciate you guys' questions. It was great talking to you. All right. Awesome. Thank you. What's up? All right. Take care. Peace. All right. Peace. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.